Hello, everyone, and welcome to Reverb. My name is Calvin Pollock, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host and co-producer, Alex Helberg. Alex, how's it going? I'm doing well, Calvin. How are you? Hanging in there. I am recovering from a bout of COVID, so apologies to uh, everyone if my voice sounds a little froggy, but uh, you know, I do it for the love of the game. That's right. And we are we are here regardless of neither disease nor uh, global conflict <laughs> nor nor really anything will keep us away from the mic. It's true. It's true. We'll keep us away from the mic uh, for longer than three months, but we're back. <laughs> um, reverb Fair is enough. still a thing. Uh, and yeah, so Alex, we are here this week to talk about a concept that I know that you and I both are big fans of uh, from critical discourse studies called manipulation. Alex, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about why we want to talk about manipulation this week? Yeah. So manipulation is something that I think has been in the background of a lot of our episodes that we've recorded, specifically episodes that talk about propaganda or various other kinds of uh, what we might consider to be malign or improper form uses of rhetoric language that has uh, a kind of you know bad effects materially on the world. The reason that we wanted to talk about it is because, I mean, I think it should be obvious at the day and time that we're recording this, this is the afternoon of November 20th, just for absolute uh, up-to-the-minute context. The world is currently witnessing a conflict in the Middle East, specifically between the nation of Israel and uh, Gaza, the Palestinians uh, living in Gaza, and uh, Hamas, the kind of uh, ostensible government structure slash terrorist organization that is uh, currently in power in the region. And particularly, there have been a lot of media messages that have been circulating about this conflict that, uh, especially for Americans, uh, for people in the U.S. who are kind of by proxy in many ways that we'll get into uh, involved uh, to some degree in this conflict, I think it's important that we study the concept of manipulation to kind of make better critical sense of the messages that we are getting about this conflict occurring on the other side of the globe. Yeah, absolutely. And I think to situate our conversation, we wanted to start by discussing the academic discipline that this concept of manipulation as we are using it comes out of. And that discipline is called critical discourse studies. So we have engaged with critical discourse studies concepts and literature at various times in the history of this show. Uh, for instance, one of our repeat guests, one of our best friends, John Otto at Carnegie Mellon is you know, to my mind, one of the best critical discourse studies scholars currently working. Absolutely. Um, his theory of propaganda is is very much situated in critical discourse studies. But I think the first thing that we wanted to discuss was what what defines a critical discourse studies approach. And here, I think we can draw from one of the most well known CDS scholars, Norman Fairclaw, who wrote in his 2003 handbook, Analyzing Discourse, which I really recommend. This is a handbook that gives you many, many different ways to um, methodologically approach a piece of writing, a piece of discourse, any kind of uh, rhetorical action, and understand both formally and rhetorically what it's doing. But Fairclaw writes in Analyzing Discourse, quote, CDA, critical discourse analysis, is analysis of the dialectical relationships between discourse, including language, but also other forms of semiosis, for example, body language or visual images, and other elements of social practices. 
Its particular concern is with the radical changes that are taking place in contemporary social life, with how discourse figures within processes of change and with shifts in the relationship between discourse and other social elements within networks of practices. Going on, he writes, quote, we cannot take the role of discourse in social practices for granted. It has to be established through analysis, unquote. So that's Fairclaw's kind of mission statement for what critical discourse analysis is. Yeah. And I think it's really important to note that, uh, you know, even though he doesn't mention it specifically, he's talking about the kind of broad array of different changes or different aspects of contemporary social life, a lot of critical discourse analysis is interested in a study in the study of how language relates to power uh, differently yes. constituted through social or uh, material factors, whether that's you know somebody who's in a position of authority and the way that they speak or the way that people use language as a means of constituting their authority or taking authority over others. Um, but power is kind of, to me, always been kind of the central concept concept of a CDS approach. I don't know. What is that? Does that resonate with you? What you think, Calvin? Absolutely. And I, and I would say even just to take it down to, you know, the ground level, part of what I love about CDS work so much is that it has historically centered really, really important and still contemporarily relevant issues of power. So, you know, much of the most well-known CDS research was published in the 90s and early 2000s, but it dealt already with questions around immigration, neoliberal economic policy, war, you know, defense spending, police violence. But I think part of what I've always loved about it is its relevance that even at a time when like popular conversations in the media and in politics were kind of just beginning about how important that set of issues was, CDS scholars were engaging with it and understanding the centrality of discourse to those issues of power. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think uh, methodologically, we also have to focus a little bit on the way that uh, a CDS approach is defined, how this is different from other, say, you know, like conversation analysis, where you're taking a right. look at the ways that different turns are taken in a sort of social conversation. So, yeah, what did you, what is uh, what does Fairclaw tell us, Calvin, about the sort of method by which you conduct uh, a critical discourse analysis? Right. Absolutely. So. Fairclaw goes on to break down at a very broad level what a CDS method looks like. So he writes, quote, one, focus upon a social problem which has a discursive aspect. Beginning with a social problem rather than the more conventional research question accords with the critical intent of this approach to produce knowledge which can lead to emancipatory change, unquote. So as you're saying, Alex, this method, you know, unlike other perhaps more traditional forms of discourse analysis begins with a social problem. As you were saying before, a problem of power, some sort of power differential or injustice, um, instance of oppression, and begin from there that right. there's something wrong in the world that needs to be solved. Right. Uh, and then he goes on, quote, number two, identify obstacles to that problem being tackled through analysis of A, the network of practices within which it is located, B, the relationship of discourse to other elements within the particular practices concerned, and then C, the discourse itself. Fairclaw breaks that down into structural analysis, which is the order of discourse, and textual or interactional analysis. 
both interdiscursive analysis and linguistic analysis. So what this is pointing us to, the second part of the method, is that what we want to do is begin from the problem, then understand the, the obstacles that are preventing that problem from being solved. So that can involve both socially what's going on around the discourse and the discourse itself. So the discourse is never understood in isolation. It's understood as part of a broader set of social practices. Absolutely. I mean, the the kind of like, you know, if we want to take a more sort of benign example before we get into the really politically heavy stuff, say, for example, you are trying to negotiate a problem like, you know, you are a 16-year-old kid who doesn't have a car and you need to enter into a negotiation relationship with a, an entity that has more power than you, say your parents who have a power relationship over you. They have the car. They have have authority, uh, putative authority over you because you are a, a minor living in their house. Uh, and so you need to obviously find different ways to negotiate discursively the appeals that you will need to activate in order to overcome the different uh, you know, power differentials that you face. Why should right. you, a person with less power, be allowed uh, this, you know, this element of power, the keys to a car to go out and do what you will with it, right? That would be just one example of the ways that you might need to navigate extra contextual factors outside of just a discourse situation uh, in terms of language. Right. And and if we were using that example to do a, a CDA, we would not just examine the language of the conversations between uh, parent and child, like as that power differential is negotiated, but we would also analyze the power differential itself. Parents, because of uh, you know traditional historical family structures, are assumed to command the social space of a home. And, and we would get into all of that along with breaking down the discourse. So that's one of the things that that distinguishes a, a CDA approach. Yeah. We might also consider historical context. The last time I gave you the car keys, you crashed it into a tree. Why should I do it again now, right? There right. is also, I think, some of those extra contextual com uh, components to the analysis uh, that I think is really critical to doing a good, robust, critical discourse inquiry. And so then just three more steps that Fairclaw lists. Quote number three, consider whether the social order, in a sense, needs the problem, unquote. So I think here what Fairclaw is getting at is that you know we want to, after we've understood what the discourse is doing to uphold the problem, uh, and prevent the problem from being solved. We want to zoom out and say, how does this problem uphold a broader structure of power? So not just the local structure of power, for example, the family uh, in which parents have more power than their children, but how does that family structure uphold a broader social structure where we need these family units to maintain a certain structure of power throughout an entire community or an entire um, economy, right? Yeah. We might also consider, for example, what a car stands for symbolically for a teenager whose other friends might have their own cars or don't or just have better relationships with their parents, but what it means as a sort of status symbol and why this kind of power uh, differential might be uh, you know, brought to the point of struggle on a discursive terrain. We're talking in very serious terms about a very benign issue. I promise we're going to get <laughs> serious about this in a minute. Exactly. And so then finally, Fairclaw writes, quote, number four, identify possible ways past the obstacles 
Number five, reflect critically on the analysis, unquote. As with all good scholarship, a CDA uh, in the end will provide a way forward, you know, give some ideas for, if nothing else, future research towards solving the problem or some actual concrete strategies for, you know, doing something in the world to improve this discourse and therefore work towards solving the problem and also will be self-reflexive about the method. In what ways could this method be refined? Um, what are limitations of the method? Um, and, you know, what does it really help us to see, but also leave, you know, perhaps unaddressed that could be addressed in the future? Yeah. And, and I think that's really one of the defining elements of just a critical approach generally, but particularly a critical discourse studies approach, is that you have a stance in your scholarship. You have a position. Right. You're not just you know, necessarily calling balls and strikes as, you know, as the old saying goes, you're not uh, being objective in the sense that it is traditionally meant where, you know, you are uh, approaching a topic or a subject, a body of text, some data with this view from nowhere that you are actually acknowledging you have a position here, right? You have, uh, you are in some ways acting a little bit as an advocate for uh, typically in this case, uh, the less powerful, the more marginalized uh, and the ways that they are being dominated or oppressed by a more powerful group. Right. And so then I think we need to take ourselves back to manipulation. So now that we've understood, you know, what a critical discourse studies approach looks like, why then would manipulation be such an important concept for uh, scholars in CDS to engage with? So for this, we are going to get into the main text that is the breakdown of our re-blurb concept, which is a foundational article from Toon Van Dyke uh, from, I believe it was 2006, called Discourse and Manipulation, in which Van Dyke gives us a really nuanced kind of breakdown of manipulation as it occurs at three different levels. So he defines the term here. Manipulation for Van Dyke is, quote, a form of social power abuse, cognitive mind control, and discursive interaction. Socially, manipulation is defined as illegitimate domination confirming social inequality. Cognitively, manipulation as mind control involves the interference with processes of understanding, the formation of biased mental models, and social representations such as knowledge and ideologies. Discursively, manipulation generally involves the usual forms and formats of ideological discourse as emphasizing our, capital O, good things, and emphasizing their, capital T, bad things. That is uh, Van Dyke's sort of base level definition. Um, so again, it's a form of social power abuse. It requires that there is a uh, dominant power and a dominated entity uh, that is being affected at a social, cognitive, and discursive level. Right. And, and I think we can see right in that definition why CDS scholars would be concerned about manipulation, because on the one hand, discourse is hugely central to what manipulation is and how manipulation works. But on the other hand, the discourse of manipulation cannot be understood in isolation. We also need to consider extra discursive factors. And for Van Dyke, because of his particular training and his particular intellectual interests, he focuses on both the social aspect of manipulation. I think that part you would probably see in any critical discourse analysis treatment of this, but also because Van Dyke uh, has done work drawing from a lot of 
cognitive science and cognitive linguistics, he brings in the cognitive element of manipulation. And so this is a truly critical discourse studies approach to this kind of this kind of concept to see it not as um, just discursive, but also extra discursive, bringing in uh, both social and material aspects. In this case, the material being like the way that cognition works materially. Absolutely. And I mean, for for Van Dyke, uh, this is, I mean, what what we just referred to, the sort of tripartite formula of discourse, cognition, and society is what he calls his triangulation framework. It's what a lot yeah. of his work and a lot of other CDA or CDS scholarship based on his definition here is uh, kind of taking as an epistemological assumption. Which is really important. I mean, it's it's talking about the ways that language eventually translates itself into social reality. The way that the world actually works uh, can be manipulated at the you know starting from the level of discourse, according to Van Dyke, making its way into the way that we form our conceptual and cognitive models of the way that the world is and the way it should be, and that eventually influences the way that we act, the way that we form ideology, the way that we form knowledge, and then of course the way that power is enacted in our world. Um, so, I mean, just to kind of break it down a little bit further here, the medium for manipulation, according to Van Dyke, starts with text and talk, discourse, sort of broadly conceived. They are instrumental in forming our uh, mental and conceptual understandings. These mental models and conceptual understandings, when they are taken up by many people, have a lot of important implications for society at large, such as the formation of civic knowledge, participation in political processes, and what that means. Means. Normative moral formulations are the way that we form uh, collective ideas of what is good and what is bad, what is worthy and unworthy of our attention, right? These are very important sort of social concepts that Van Dyke is arguing here start at the level of discourse and can be interfered with, indeed manipulated by powerful entities at the level of discourse. Right. And and I think a mental model is can be kind of a challenging concept for some people, but it could be something as simple as the difference between a right and a privilege. So whether we socially tend to acknowledge something like healthcare as a privilege provided by employers um, or, you know, provided to you if you have the money to afford it or a right that every person is entitled to because they have a body and they need healthcare to like keep that body running. That's right. Yeah. And I mean, we form these ideas about uh, what constitutes a right, not only definitionally, but, you know, in the actual domain of ideas, right? The idea that healthcare is a privilege, something that you have to work for, something that you have to earn and not a right, something that you are just entitled to by the fact of your existence is socially constructed uh, through discourse. It is reinforced through discourse constantly uh, and is very political in the way that it's done so. Um so I think that, you know, to start out here, obviously, as we've been mentioning here for Van Dyke, an analysis of power and domination is necessary for understanding the way that manipulation functions. And he has kind of a, a very particular breakdown here, quote, manipulation not only involves power, but specifically abuse of power. That is domination. That is manipulation implies the exercise of a form of illegitimate influence by means of discourse. Manipulators make others believe or do things that are in the interest of the manipulator and against the best interests of the manipulated. 
this is where Van Dyke really gets into differentiating between, you know, that word illegitimate is kind of critical here. It's going to come up a lot in this overall discussion of manipulation because you might be asking yourself right now, and fairly so, uh, how is manipulation different from just regular old persuasion, right? Like, how is this different from using language or using discourse to get somebody to believe something that they didn't believe before or to change their opinion on something. Yeah, and and this is really important to clarify because people love to throw around the term manipulative. Oh, you're being so manipulative, especially in interpersonal disputes. Um when really, you know, someone may just have their best interests at heart and are advocating for those interests. And that might not always be manipulative. So, yeah. so what is the distinction between manipulation and persuasion, according to Van Dyke? For Van Dyke, quote, the crucial difference in this case is that in persuasion, the interlocutors are free to believe or act as they please, depending on whether or not they accept the arguments of the persuader. Whereas in manipulation, recipients are typically assigned a more passive role. They are victims of manipulation. This negative consequence of manipulative discourse typically occurs when the recipients are unable to understand the real intentions or to see the full consequences of the beliefs or actions advocated by the manipulator. This may be the case especially when the recipients lack the specific knowledge that might be used to resist manipulation. End quote. Right. So there, there's something really crucial here about the freedom of the audience to resist or to take a different position. Right. That there, there's something in either the social situation, occasionally in the actual structure of the discourse, which which Van Dyke will get into, that makes it so that there's this power inequity like in the discursive situation. So there's a power inequity in either the amount of knowledge that the speaker has versus that the audience has or um, something external to that, maybe even awareness of the audience's pre-existing biases and values that makes it so that they're not totally free to form their own opinion. That opinion is to wit manipulated. Yes, exactly. And he does really give us a, a, the sense that the social conditions for manipulation are constituted materially. These are things that we can actually observe out in the world to say that certain discourse participants have more objective social power than others, uh, that they are discrete differentials of power and control. Uh, he talks about this quote, in terms of group membership, institutional position, profession, material or symbolic resources, and other factors that define the power of groups and their members. Thus, parents can manipulate their children because of their position of power and authority in the family. Professors can manipulate their students because their institutional position or profession and because of their knowledge. And the same is true for politicians manipulating voters, journalists manipulating the recipients of media discourse, or religious leaders manipulating their followers. Right. So, right. And I'm yeah. sure we can't think of any examples of any of those, right? Absolutely uh, not. Religious no. leaders uh, manipulating their followers. That's never happened. Um, no. Right. And, and I mean, I would just call uh, to mind a, an example that I remember from several years back. The University of Pittsburgh had a graduate student union campaign. That's right. And, and one of the things that, that I remember hearing or was perhaps reported in the pit news there was this big split disciplinary split 
in support for the union. The vast majority of humanities and social sciences grad students voted to unionize, and the vast majority of STEM voted against it. And what I came to learn was that professors were putting a ton of pressure on their lab, grad students working in their labs, to vote against unionization. And and that, to me, is a great example of this kind of manipulation that uses the social structure to manipulate the opinions of an audience. I think that the union drive example is such a great one. And this is not even just limited to the University of Pittsburgh. There are a lot of other places where graduate student union drives have happened where, you know, for example, there are large populations of international students for whom their departments or the university administration have put out flyers, you know, sometimes even in their native languages saying, we don't know what your worker visa status is going to be under a union contract. So you might not want to vote for the, even though obviously like, I mean, getting a union contract doesn't affect your, your green cards status at all. That is a perfect example of manipulative discourse by a powerful entity being used to distort, obfuscate, really just tell a sort of lie of omission to a less powerful group. Because I guess the idea there would be that you will get a new contract as a result of the union bargaining. Therefore, who knows what could happen when it's like, obviously, the union and you as a member of the union could advocate for protections for your visa as part of the contract. Exactly. Uh, but, but, But that's, as you say, manipulatively omitted in the discourse. Yes, that's exactly right. Specifically, Van Dyke talks about uh, there are a couple of stipulations that he has for being able to isolate these power differentials. One of them is, uh, as he mentions, control of the channels for public discourse. He writes, quote, obviously, in order to be able to manipulate many others through text and talk, one needs to have access to some form of public discourse, such as parliamentary debates, news, opinion articles, textbooks, scientific articles, novels, TV shows shows, advertising, the internet, and so on. And since such access and control in turn depend on, as well as constitute, the power of a group, an institution, profession, etc., public discourse is at the same time a means of the social reproduction of such power. And he really kind of goes on, the one thing that I also wanted to tack on here was that manipulation at a societal level for Van Dyke, quote, needs to be defined in terms of social groups, institutions, or organizations, and not at the individual level of personal interaction. This means that it only makes sense to speak of manipulation as defined when speakers or writers are manipulating others in their role as a member of a dominant collectivity. Right. And that's so important because, again, this comes back to that kind of counterexample that I mentioned earlier that, you know, people will throw around this term manipulative. Oh, you're being so manipulative. In some of those contexts, that may be true, right? But if and only if the manipulation is grounded in that social position, that that positionality as a figurehead or agent of a powerful institution or powerful group. And, and so we, we need to analyze the power of the group and the power of the institution to really call something manipulation. And I would also add that I was really interested when Van Dyke pointed out <clears throat> some of the genres of uh, manipulative discourse that having access to textbooks, scientific articles, um, advertising, the internet, that all of those can become spaces of manipulation because when you control those spaces, 
you have the material power to manipulate at a large scale. And I think that's you know, a great reminder of the social justice impact of, for example, technical communication, that when you have the power to influence the language and rhetoric used in something like an instruction manual, a software documentation, or, you know, a website explaining something technical, you have the power to manipulate or to push against manipulation. Um, and, and that's a really important kind of a call to action for technical communicators and people who teach technical communication. Absolutely. And I mean, this is really, you know, I, I'm glad that you're bringing up this notion of, you know, because that is a professional context, like a professional group that does have a lot of discursive power in term because they are tied to all of these controls of channels for public discourse. You know, technical and professional communicators might be anyone who's working in, uh, you know, it could be people who are working in advertising. It could be people who are working at the behest of uh, different political administrations or other entities that have at companies power, right? at companies. Yeah, absolutely. For corporations. This is why, I mean, just as an example, I have my students uh, in one of my classes do uh, analyses of manipulative food advertising. And mm. one of the things that I so often hear in their sort of call to action is like, well, these these advertisers just need to stop. They just need to be more truthful in their in their discourse. And my answer to them is, well, you know, how how are you going to make that case to them, right? They will not do that unless they are unless there is some consequence articulated for them at you know by a power higher than them, such as US, you know, the the FT the, regulators. Uh, the F, yeah, 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 FCC and regulators, right? Like there is no there is no discursive change without that kind of power relationship. So it's important to know who controls what access to different uh, channels for public discourse to know where that manipulation is coming from, who is being manipulated by it, and whose interests the manipulative discourse is really in. This is where we get to, I think, what Van Dyke really defines as his sort of normative or, uh, you know, kind of prescriptive standard for the illegitimacy of manipulation. Uh, so he writes, quote, manipulation is illegitimate in a democratic society because it reproduces or may reproduce inequality. The definition is not based on the intentions of the manipulators, nor on the more or less conscious awareness of the manipulation by the recipients, but in terms of its societal consequences. Really, really important concept to talk about here is the overall consequence of manipulation for Van Dyke is that it reproduces or reinforces inequality. Right. And so this is, I think, maybe familiar to people a little bit, given recent conversations about racism. Uh, and so if you think about racism as not something that's defined, again, interpersonally or even exclusively discursively, that racism isn't just about the words you use or your personal interactions, but that racism is a structural factor. It's outcomes, economic outcomes, social outcomes, uh, political outcomes. And we have to sort of see those outcomes and consequences at scale before we can really identify racism as a material fact, right? Uh, and And of course, in the United States, we see that in outcomes and systems like housing, like criminal justice and uh, employment, right? And so that understanding the study of consequences as where we can really see these negative uh, 
social phenomena, I think is a really robust and helpful way to understand manipulation as well. That manipulation has to happen at scale and involve these disparate outcomes and inequities between groups. Absolutely. That is really kind of the upshot of Van Dyke's model that I think is, you know, what makes it kind of the, as far as I've run across by now, kind of the best model for analyzing discourse and manipulation at a sort of large scale. But it's also important to sort of look at, we've we've taken a look at the kind of top level of Van Dyke's analysis, the, so, the social or the societal, the mediating factor between discourse, what happens at the level of language, text, and talk is the cognitive level. So for Van Dyke, this is particularly important because as he says, quote, manipulating people involves manipulating their minds. That is people's beliefs, such as the knowledge, opinions, and ideologies, which in turn control their actions. So there is a little bit of a sort of mental ontological claim being made here about the ways that uh, we form mental models, the way that we sort of think about how the world works at a sort of meta level. And that uh, that that controls our actions. Van Dyke is saying specifically that uh, manipulation first affects the way that our minds develop a sort of shorthand understanding and decision making procedures at the level of short term memory. He writes, quote, cognitively speaking, manipulation is nothing special. It makes use of very general properties of discourse processing. This would be, for example, even in just the way that a text is laid out. If you've ever heard the statistic that, you know, whatever high percentage of people who read the news don't ever read past the headlines, that is because, uh, and Van Dyke references this example, headlines are registered as more important information and more worthy of mental processing power due to their position, size, and scale relative to uh, other items on the page of a newspaper, which is why, you know, for example, it's particularly pernicious sometimes that writers don't get to choose their headlines, right? Yes. The people who actually write an, a newspaper article, journalists are kind of at the whims of their editors when they are when their uh, story actually goes to print, because more often than not, that's what the vast majority of people are just going to read. Right. And and this short term memory uh, factor in in how people process text is is another reason that you know any professional writing teacher worth their salt should be educating their students about the importance of topic sentences and and document design that that highlights the most important information the information that you're trying to get across because of that short-term memory processing factor absolutely as he continues to write here, manipulation selectively facilitates and obfuscates our understanding, right? So when we get, when we receive discourse that is manipulative, it is in some way changing our uh, representation so that it is in line with what a dominant group or institution wants us to understand, right? Uh, specifically, if this information is consistent with their interests and hinder the comprehension of that information that is not in their best interests. Um, so this is what he's essentially arguing here is that at the level of short-term memory, there are these micro-level decisions that can be made that affect our sort of short-term decision-making processes. Right. And again, this can be about choice of headline, choice of information to put in the first paragraph. I mean, a lot of the most manipulative media reporting will bury very important information, about 12 paragraphs in the article, information that might give you a more nuanced picture of whatever issue is being reported on and so that's that's a a tactic of of um short-term memory manipulation that's a perfect example there yeah the 
other type of mental manipulation that he talks about is manipulation that's aimed at affecting our knowledge, attitudes, and ideologies, which he says operates at the level of long-term or episodic uh, personal and subjective memory. He writes, quote, if manipulators are aiming for recipients to understand a discourse as they see it, it is crucial that the recipients form the mental models the manipulators want them to form, thus restricting their freedom of interpretation, or at least the probability that they will understand the discourse against the best interests of the manipulators. So for example, doing things like victim blaming, the reattribution of responsibility. I mean, to me, the key way of understanding this is the story that people are telling themselves about what's going on in a situation. So not just if we think about something like COVID, a news report comes out about a certain spike in cases. One media source might put that in the context of a broader narrative about the failure of the government. Uh, Another media source might put that in the context of a broader narrative about the vaccine being fraudulent or something like that, right? And so giving people a broader story or priming a broader story that this local story fits within, I think is how long-term memory is manipulated in this case. No, that's exactly right. And I mean, really where this becomes most consequential is when this kind of manipulation of personal or subjective memory as it's fed to you through various pieces of propaganda, through other kinds of uh, different uh, discursive media, uh, is when it affects the level of what he calls social cognition. He writes here, quote, the most influential form of manipulation does not focus on the creation of specific preferred mental models at the individual level, but on the formation or modification of more general socially shared representations, such as attitudes or ideologies about important social issues. To your point, Calvin, he talks about, quote, one of these strategies is generalization, in which case a concrete specific example that has made an impact on people's mental models is generalized to a more general knowledge or attitudes or even fundamental ideologies. This would be the case. I mean, the case in point that we'll probably talk a little bit more about is uh, the sort of slippage of the uh, American military intervention in Afghanistan to the eventual American military intervention in Iraq, right? The kind of use of uh, the pervading spirit of the time in between 2001 and 2003 of, you know, the Middle East being a war zone for these areas kind of not being conceptually distinct from one another of Saddam Hussein and Al-Qaeda being these kind of, you know, both great evils that are confronting America specifically that is used to justify a specific military action because of this kind of mental model that has already been created. This more specific instance, like going to war in Iraq, is generalized as being part of a sort of the global war on terrorism more broadly constituted. Right. And And I would say if we want to think about a domestic policy example, the creation of tropes, I think, is is a great way of understanding how this works. So in the 1980s, when you know Reaganite economic discourse created this trope of the welfare queen, which you know what that does is it creates a lasting mental model, yes. a lasting character, a kind of villain that rather than having on a case by case basis to say don't support this additional government spending or support this effort to cut government spending, you create a character type that persists across individual debates that people with certain interests can point to 
to manipulate you into opposing all kinds of government programs. Absolutely. Yeah, that's such a perfect example because the welfare queen archetype, I think, was, I mean, still to this day is probably one of the most pernicious sort of social fictions that has been created to justify, you know, every time someone brings up a sort of, you know, cuts to a social safety net program, there are always or or expanding for that matter, a social safety net program, there will always be this contextual milieu of, you know, people both in power and, you know, even at the level of like regular everyday citizens or discourse participants who bring up this idea of of the uh um you know the undeserving the welfare, the welfare, yeah the yeah the, the un, yeah the undeserving moocher who is just leeching off the system doesn't want to work doesn't want to do anything and you know it never has to be actualized as a real person like maybe you know one person in your in your friend of a friend's life or something like that who acts this way but you use that to basically say well because of that you know, this one social archetype, no one deserves any form of social welfare, regardless of their circumstances, which is certainly an example of manipulation, uh, the interests of the powerful who might want those tax dollars to go to something else and, right. uh, and not to ordinary people. And we can see how that endures over decades by looking at a case like COVID, where the social safety net established after COVID you know, was cut like as quickly as the, as as it could be, Ugh. um, through a very similar kind of trope of yeah, no one wants to work anymore, um, and sort yes. of that truism, uh, being repeated over and over again. It is this kind of long term memory, uh, social manipulation that you know that we've inherited from the very beginnings of the neoliberal era in the seventies and eighties. That's exactly right. Man, what a terrifying and very relevant example. So now we have covered the cognitive level of Van Dyke's analysis. Now we get down to the sort of basic level of how manipulations are generated, which is at the level of discourse. He writes, quote, although discourse structures per se need not be manipulative, some of these structures may be more efficient than others in the process of influencing the minds of recipients in the speaker's or writer's own interests. So we've talked about a couple of these various tropes. We'll talk about even more as we get into our analysis of some of the different manipulations that have been delivered on the Israel uh, and Gaza conflict. But Overall, generally, these in Van Dyke's terms are the sort of presentation of positive values being associated with an in-group, negative values being associated with an out-group, macro-level speech acts implying the good, justified acts on the part of uh, an in-group versus the unjustifiable acts of the out-group, obfuscating things by giving fewer or more details about them, being general or specific, vague or precise about certain elements, using a selective lexicon for describing individual actors or individual entities versus others, using active and passive voice to describe who has the ability to take action or who has committed certain actions or who has not, hiding that agency in a passive voice sentence, using nominalizations to de-emphasize agency and responsibility for certain actions that take place. This might also follow the form of hyperboles, euphemisms, metonymy, and metaphor, as well as any other sort of forms of emphasis that you can place on certain elements over 
others. And I think we want to make the point as well that this can be linguistic, but it can also be non-linguistic. It involves the rhetoric of the rhetoric of design. So using text effects to to emphasize certain kind of information, using multimodal discourse and rhetoric, uh, putting and also really crucially how you organize texts and how you organize multimedia rhetoric really affects the manipulative nature of rhetoric. Absolutely. I mean, just as kind of a really clear example of this, if you think of any prescription drug advertisement that you've ever seen, (laughs) the way that the side effects are- Side effects may include death. (laughs) (laughs) Some very serious ones typically are just blasted through in the most- Mumbled in the last two seconds of the ad before you've seen two minutes of of happy stock footage of like- (laughs) you know, playing pickleball thanks to your erectile dysfunction medication. Um, <laughs> oh, man. That's, that one got me good. Um, got that. <laughs> but yeah, and also is put in small text at the very bottom of the screen for about three seconds. So, you know, yeah. technically, technically, if you had some kind of TiVo or other kind of, you know, like uh, if you had the ability to pause that advertisement and zoom in real close, you could technically see it legally. They're getting away with being transparent about their side effects for their medication. But this is obviously manipulative. They do not want you to know about the potential side effects because that might harm their profit. (laughs) That might harm their ability to sell their prescription drugs if people focused on the side effects versus the primary effects that the drugs are claimed to have. Right. So Van Dyke sums it up by saying, in some and in quite informal terms, the overall strategy of manipulative discourse is to focus on those cognitive and social characteristics of the recipient that make them more vulnerable and less resistant to manipulation, and that make them credulous or willing victims to accept beliefs and do things that they otherwise would not do. It is here that the essential condition of domination and inequality plays a role. Right. And so I think here we want to turn to some primary texts and just, you know, as we're going through them, do a live annotation for manipulative discourse features, discourse features that manipulate cognition and reaffirm the kind of unequal social relationship that's required for manipulation to occur. And I think we want to start with an example that's a little bit close to home here for us, you know, academically and professionally. And so I'll give just a little bit of context on this. So a couple of weeks back, there was a protest planned and organized on the campus of Alex's and my alma mater, Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, a protest for peace, basically in the Israel-Gaza conflict. And what I found quite disturbing and quite manipulative was this email that was sent out by the university president, Farnam Jahanian, the next day, kind of addressing the protest and also addressing broader issues of discourse about Israel-Gaza on the campus. And I would say from a critical discourse studies approach, the social problem that we're observing here is intellectual freedom or the lack of intellectual freedom increasingly in higher education, and particularly around certain issues, one of which being United States foreign policy, Palestinian rights, and and issues related to this. Do you think that that captures the social problem here? Absolutely, it does. And it really, what we're hoping to highlight here is the role that university administrators do and administrations play in 
constraining that free speech, even as they continue to say that they stand for freedom of expression. There are clear points at which we can see that that expression has limits. And I think at that point, it is worthwhile to question what the interests of the uh, of those administrators and their role as sort of power brokers in the university actually hold. Right. And so I'll, I'll just read the email from Mr. Jahanian, and if you want to cut me off at any point and point anything out, Alex, uh, you, you go for it. So this was sent out on November 10th. Quote, Dear members of the CMU community, over the past few weeks, rhetoric about the conflict in the Middle East has become increasingly toxic and harmful on our campus and on social media. So just first thing to flag here is that there is a lack of agency in this sentence, that the rhetoric as if that was its own entity, is is becoming, through no fault of anyone's in particular, increasingly toxic and harmful. There's a passive voice construction that's going yes. on here about rhetoric becoming toxic, right? As if that was something that rhetoric could do as a disembodied you know, <laughs> rhetoric right. from who? Rhetoric towards yes. what? How is it becoming toxic, right? Quote, and this is the second full paragraph here, quote, our Jewish friends and colleagues have been subjected to hateful phrases and slurs. Demonstrators who gathered on our campus yesterday, many of them from outside our community, chanted the words from the river to the sea. This phrase, and there's a hyperlink there, this phrase, referring to the land between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, is used by the terrorist group Hamas and others as a call for the elimination of Israel and the eradication of the Jewish people. In no uncertain terms, I condemn speech that advocates the eradication of any group of people. So what's really fascinating about this particular paragraph here is that it starts off, our Jewish friends and colleagues have been subjected to hateful phrases and slurs, yeah. after which we have demonstrators who gathered on our campus yesterday chanted the words from the river to the sea. That is obviously immediately setting up a sort of semantic link between those two things. That yeah, I mean, a topic sentence, and, as yes. we know, sets up the argument for a paragraph. So right. the primary claim of this paragraph is that Jewish friends and colleagues at CMU have been subjected to hateful phrases. Then our first supporting claim is that demonstrators gathered and said from the river to the sea. So there's some kind of argumentative link between those. Yep. Not only that, but in that second sentence, it also bears mentioning that many of them are from outside of our community, right? Outside of Carnegie Mellon. There's no way that the call of, this is a claim of anti-Semitic rhetoric, that the call could not be coming from inside the house of CMU. Right. That there's no way that our, uh, or at least that not many of our students, faculty, other people who may have been attending this demonstration would have been using this ostensibly anti-Semitic phrase from the river yes. to the sea. Yes. And and I, we should also flag that that move of saying many of them from outside our, our community is a really important claim of univocality within one community. That, That's right. That our community is a kind of united, inherently uh, homogenous, ideologically homogenous space, and that therefore any sort of problems, as you're saying, Alex, must be coming from outside because we are one, we are united. And that's a really common feature across manipulative discourse. But then, but then crucially, in the next sentence is where that argumentative link of demonstrators said from, from the river to the sea, 
uh, and and that's evidence of Jewish friends and colleagues being subjected to hate. In the next sentence, that link is fortified in a really manipulative way. So it says, this phrase is used by the terrorist group Hamas to call for the elimination of Israel and the eradication of the Jewish people. Now, I noted as I was first reading it that the line, this phrase is hyperlinked. Yes. Yes. If you follow this link, the article that it links to doesn't really support uh, the idea (laughs) that's being put forward here. But This is an example of what we were just talking about, of using multimodal aspects of the text, not necessarily the language itself, but the construction of the text through things like hyperlinks to manipulate. Because the presence of a hyperlink represents that this is a sourced claim, even if the source doesn't actually support what you're saying. (laughs) And, And you can rely on the fact that probably only a small percentage of your readers will actually click the link and check that it supports the claim you're making, right? right. And then, of course, obviously, there is the manipulative tactic of associating a certain protest slogan with a terrorist group. There's this broader, what Van Dyke would probably classify as this broader tactic of generalization or trying to um, manipulatively influence general attitudes by associating that phrase from the river to the sea, not just with the terrorist group Hamas, but with broader anti-Semitic ideologies, that that phrase is like key to anti-Semitic ideology and that it counts as, you know, what he describes as, quote, speech that advocates the eradication of a group of people, which is not really true about that phrase. No. For the most, I mean, the the completion of that phrase from the river to the sea is Palestine will be free, which is not calling for the eradication, if you'll notice, is not explicitly calling for the eradication of anyone. It is calling for the freedom and uh, the rights of a certain group of people to be recognized. You know, the recent nation state law that was passed in Israel pretty clearly establishes Arab Israelis as second class citizens because it specifically names the state of Israel as the homeland of the Jews. And many Arab Israelis are not Jewish. Um, So at this point, you know, legally, institutionally, the nation state is a Jewish supremacist ethno state. Yes. Um, But I, I would just also want to flag that part of why a paragraph like this is manipulative and functions as manipulation is exactly what you're getting at. It's the knowledge inequity between the writer and their assumed readers. And so it's not just <clears throat> knowledge inequity about what's actually going on in Israel and Palestine, but it's also knowledge inequity about activists who use a phrase like this. If yeah. you have the knowledge that the vast, vast, vast majority of activists who use this phrase are not calling for the eradication of Jewish people or even the eradication of Israel as a state necessarily, right? No, exactly. um, there are many activists who are calling for much more milquetoast reforms or even just you know, the end of the current conflict, right. uh, the current flashpoint, then you would be able to challenge these assertions, right? Yes. But the writer assumes that you don't have that knowledge and therefore is able to get these claims across. The other yeah. thing is that 
So there's both knowledge of what activists are calling for. There's also knowledge and equity about who the activists actually are. There isn't a strong right. assumption and implication here that the activists themselves are not Jewish, which is yes. untrue. That's correct. Yeah. And just to just to really put a fine point on it, we can actually identify that knowledge gap through because I mean, this is put in a pretty clear enthymematic argument structure. For those of you that may not remember, enthymemes are a you know logical argument, a syllogism with missing minor premises. In this case, we have demonstrators use the phrase from the river to the sea. There's a terrorist group that has used this phrase to call for the eradication of the Jewish people. Missing minor premise here is that anyone now who uses this phrase, if they both use this phrase, they must both be calling for the eradication of the Jewish people. And then, of course, Farnham's last uh, thing, in no uncertain terms, I condemn speech that advocates the eradication of any group of people. Therefore, I can. there's a missing conclusion here. Therefore, I condemn these demonstrators is more or less what he's getting at. Right. So then let's get to the next paragraph. So Farnham goes on, quote, also deeply concerning, we have heard accounts of members of our Arab and Muslim community being called, quote, terrorists, degenerates, and animals. Slurs dehumanize, divide, and deeply hurt members of our community. Such rhetoric is antithetical to our values, fostering neither the intellectual rigor nor the inclusive environment we work tirelessly to cultivate. So uh, <laughs> the kind of equivalent attention that this is, or the, I should say not the non-equivalent attention that this is being given, that this is an afterthought, also yeah. deeply concerning. We have heard accounts of members being uh, of the Arab and Muslim community being called terrorists, degenerates, and animals. He is not condemning that speech, though. There is no direct condemnation of that in here as well, nor, for example, the, again, the the foreknowledge that you might have if you've been paying attention to the news that rhetoric like this has actually come directly from people working in the Israeli government. Yes. Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant uh, said, you know, quote, I have ordered a complete siege of the Gaza Strip. There will be no electricity, no food, no fuel. Everything is closed. We are fighting human animals and we are acting accordingly. So, why why not uh, like why why not condemn that <laughs> you know like right. there's a there's a real clear need to condemn like that kind of dehumanizing language also is directly advocating for the eradication of a group of people like you right heard. and 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 there was there was a child murdered um yes. here in the united states like for being palestinian right, right. as a result of this rhetoric so it it's it's already had real you know, um, violent consequences. But we can see in the writing here that this kind of rhetoric is not being condemned in as harsh of terms as the protest slogan from the river to the sea. That's and right. so the impression that someone without this contextual knowledge that we're bringing in here might form is that, yes, you know, a few mean words are being thrown at Arab and Muslim students, but it's nowhere near as urgent or concerning as anti-Semitic protests that are taking place on my campus. And we can see that various textual features are used to get that manipulation across. There's the length of the paragraphs. So the previous paragraph is much longer than this paragraph. There's the language used to imply the certainty of the claim, right? So the topic sentence in the previous paragraph was Jewish friends and colleagues have been subjected to hate. The topic sentence of this paragraph is 
we have heard accounts oh, of members of our notice. Arab and Muslim community being called and then, you know, quotation marks around terrorists, degenerates and animals. So that claim is hedged in a much more uh, dramatic way. In other words, it's made less certain than the claim that uh, there's been anti-Semitism on campus. That is so pernicious. That one even slipped past me on the first read-through, which is, you know, I study this stuff all day. Like, the degree to which that could affect somebody's, you know, at such a... a uh, such a subtle level that 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 the certainty of that claim or the the framing of that as oh it's just scuttlebutt that we've heard around campus you know versus a direct claim and statement in the first paragraph wow that is astonishing right. so clearly intentional manipulation there so let's go on quote as a community of thoughtful scholars and global citizens we hold a deep commitment to the principles of freedom of expression it is a cornerstone that supports our academic mission on a diverse campus united by compassion for one another, this commitment also carries with it a profound responsibility to use speech that does not seek to invoke fear or espouse the marginalization of any one group. Any thoughts on that, Alex? Man, I mean... <laughs> I mean, if nothing else, we, we do see the presence of some really central American ideographs absolutely. here, terms like freedom of expression, even value language like compassion, responsibility, negative yeah. value language like marginalization. Um, and so there is a strong pitch here that, you know, Farnham represents the good, that this kind of uh, email is is uh, delivered in good faith and is intended to like increase the freedom of uh, those who receive it. Right. It's also, I mean, I, I could see that this is also very clearly, and I mean, this is this has been true of all CMU administrative communique since we were students there, is that there is just such a a not there is such a non-confrontational attitude about the whole thing in this paragraph. Like the the reaffirmation, the kind of you know, epideictic function that this paragraph is doing is just saying that, you know, on a diverse campus, united by compassion for one another, it's not any of our responsibility. It's it's the commitment that carries with it yeah. a profound responsibility. The commitment is the thing that has the responsibility, not people, to use speech that does not seek to invoke fear. Again, there's just so much, so much distance between people and their actions, their speech, and their responsibilities here that, uh, yeah, to, uh, to invoke fear or espouse the marginalization of any one group. Again, it's just like they, it, this is more of the sort of like creative ways of saying nothing that is more yes. typical of the admin. Absolutely. And, and I think that it serves a manipulative purpose in that way, where it's kind of just treading water uh in the email like i've That's already right. said the spicy stuff so let me just tread <laughs> yeah. water for a bit but i think it sets up the manipulative power of the next couple of paragraphs so he goes sure. on and i'll just read i'll read to the end from here sure. quote while i rarely comment on language used in the pursuit of free expression i need to call out the deep pain and fear that these words and phrases can cause even when language may be protected under our policy on free speech, it still has the power to create fear of antagonism and violence. Let me be clear. I condemn speech that advocates for the eradication of any group or dehumanizes others. I strongly urge all members of this community to refrain from using language that targets a particular group and causes hurt and fear in friends, classmates, or colleagues. 
Whatever one's political leanings or views on this issue, we are all part of one CMU community, and we share the responsibility to show care and concern for one another. This is not about being politically correct, nor about censoring speech. It is about not fueling fear or the potential for violence. Words have power. Let's be respectful and intentional in how we express our views. We will continue to have meaningful dialogue on this campus. It is through this lens of respect and responsibility that our university's commitment to free expression achieves its higher purpose. Sincerely, Farnham Jahanian President, Henry L. Hillman, President's Chair. Yes, kumbaya. Um, I just have to say, so, I mean, there's there's a lot to pick apart in this last part of the email. The first is... He's rare. He says that he rarely comments on language used in the pursuit of free expression. That also appears to be hyperlinked. Um, I don't know what the source that that goes to is, but I'm guessing that it doesn't refer to any of the instances in which he has commented on the speech of different members of the community. For example, when our university administration uh, directly censured, uh, you know, people like Uju Anya for claim or for comments that she made on her personal social media account for. Or, uh, defending the free speech rights of, uh, uh, you know, Trump administration member uh, Richard Grinnell when he was hired by Chiron Skinner to serve this kind of very like, uh, you know, figurehead do nothing, basically make work job at Carnegie Mellon, um, despite being like a real true bigot like really just a, a nasty disgusting person um he has absolutely commented on this in the past and has defended uh the rights of people in power at the expense of those who don't um so i mean already that's pretty manipulative for those who don't have a contextual knowledge here um in general i really do think that overall though like i mean in talking about uh, condemning speech that advocates for the eradication of a group or dehumanizes others and talking about the relationship of speech to violence. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. The demonstration that he's referring to was a demonstration in favor of a ceasefire in Gaza. Was it not? Yes. It was also so, literally it was also for a peace. vigil. It was also a vigil for people who have been killed in the conflict. Right. Well, so it was it was almost the opposite almost the exact opposite of what he's uh, implying that it was. And, and I think that that's, again, this is an exploitation of the knowledge gap between a manipulative speaker and a manipulated audience. You would have to know, you would have to have attended that protest to understand that the protest did not get violent at all, that the protest was not oriented towards any kind of violence, that the protest was actually intended to bring about the opposite the, the cessation of violence the cessation of hostilities um you know perhaps as well you know ending structural violence towards people affected by that in the region right but yeah you know the idea that this protest slogan from the river to the sea rendered all of that speech inherently violent and in particular inherently violent in the same way that slurs are violent right which as we already analyzed those slurs are both questioned like as to their empirical validity like whether they even occurred um in in the writing of this right. and they're also given much less emphasis um yes. and and much less kind of condemnation than 
what is basically a liberation-oriented, peace-oriented protest slogan. Right. So, so that that to me is the central manipulation here: is exploiting people's lack of knowledge about the protest itself. So this this individual instance, exploiting their uh, maybe so in, in this case cognitively manipulating their short-term memory about this protest and cognitively manipulating their long-term memory about these broader political issues, Islamophobia, yeah. anti-Arab racism, Israel-Palestine itself, you know, the U.S. role in the region. Um, and so it kind of touches all of that in a really manipulative way. Absolutely. I mean, I, I really also, just in terms of the sort of cognitive uh, cues that are being teed up here, in that second to last paragraph, he says in this sentence, this is not about being politically correct, nor about censoring speech. So, I mean, already those are two kind of charged ideographs that have become particularly relevant in uh, contemporary politics. Especially on the right. Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah, not about being politically correct, not about censoring. I mean, it's clearly about both of those things um, because political correctness is not political correctness is a feature of political discourse, not a not something that only liberals do, uh, as some ideologues would like you to believe there is. You know, what I think is politically like everybody has a version of political correctness in terms of like what is the proper way to talk about an issue? Like, what are the proper terms to use to describe it? And you can't pretend not to. Political correctness is thrown around as this kind of kind of disingenuous argumentative strategy to say you are being you are censoring me by saying by having an opinion. Your opinion is silencing me, which again, I think that. You know, for Farnham to go here and claim this is not about being politically correct, it's not about censoring speech, while he is specifically condemning and saying, you know, there are certain forms of speech here that are not allowed, um, is, I mean, it's it's explicitly the opposite. And it's equivocating between like a political argument, fundamentally, yes. like from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, is an epideictic political argument. Yes. Equivocating between that and slurs which there's no argument in a slur a slur is no. entirely designed to end argument to yes. you know create opportunities for violence yes. by rendering other people subhuman mm-hmm. um and so the equivocation between those two things i think is a really profound form of censorship of of um chilling effect and particularly this comes back to the social dimension of manipulation where Farnham is not just any old random guy like sending this email out to right. to a chain <laughs> like it's not like a chain email that you get from your grandpa that you can just delete <laughs> right this this has real social power in a university context this is one of the most powerful people at the university he can get you expelled yes. he can get you fired he can get your tenure denied yes um he has the ability to materially affect other people within this social space, and not even just within this social space. He has political power. I saw today that he's going to be on the transition team for Sarah Inamorato um, in the Allegheny County Executive Office. Um, Farnham's a good friend of President Obama. Like yep. This is someone with a lot of social power. And so when he makes these equivocations, 
and these condemnations of certain kinds of political speech, it it has that chilling effect and it has that censorship effect. That's right. And he doesn't have any power over us anymore. He, we already got our degrees. He can't take those away, <laughs> as far as I know. In, 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 if, if he can, Farnham, if you're listening, I'm so sorry. Everything that we said about you is uh, not true. Please give us our PhDs back. Farnham, if you're listening, uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll take those 100,000 deleted emails. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. Truly, let's uh, let's get into yeah. <laughs> we have but his emails, except uh, for Carnegie Mellon. <laughs> get his emails. Get his emails. <laughs> get his emails. Russia, oh. please give us his emails. Um, yeah. So, so I think that you know this this is a great example of manipulation for so many reasons, um, and I hope that you know applying the framework in this way shows the critical power of this framework because we can get into not just the discourse, but also how social power affects like the persuasiveness of different discourse features. So it's not just that he organizes it in a certain way, uh, provides evidence in a certain way through hyperlinks um, and and manipulates, you know, these these ideographic phrases of censorship and free speech, freedom of expression, but also that like he does so from a position of power. And we can also think through the cognitive effects of different framing strategies that he gives us a particular idea of what this protest actually was. And he gives us a particular idea of what the conflict is all about, yeah. what Carnegie Mellon has been in recent history as a space for free expression. And so it affects our mental models at those levels as well. Absolutely. I mean, there's also a conspicuous silence in that text, which, of course, he does not mention Israel. He does not. I mean, he does mention Hamas. He does not mention Gaza. He does not mention the bombing campaign that has been ongoing for over a month now um, that has killed upwards of what are, I don't even know what the death count is now. 15,000, 15, 15, upwards of 15,000 people at the time of this recording. Seems like it would, would be important context to mention, but, you know. I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, it's, it's hard to say, it's hard to give a prescription for somebody like a university president whose institution is so tied up within the U S military industrial complex, which is of course providing billions and of dollars of aid and military direct military support to, uh, the Israeli military, um, to, I mean, you don't have to make that many jumps, uh, logically to think about why this particular university president might be, you know, might be framing an issue in a certain manipulative light. Yeah. Framing it as, yeah, the, the you know, the, the real, the real threat yeah, here yeah. Is, the, is this protest with this yes. horrible, <laughs> this protest with this horrible um, slogan. And These people also, calling for a, for a ceasefire that they might not use more of the weapons that were developed here at Carnegie Mellon. <laughs> right. And, and, and that, that a protest like this, um, you know, it's clear that the, the the causal implication of this is that a protest like this just riles everyone up. And then we get stuff like reports of slurs against right. Arabs and Muslims, right. uh, which may or may not be true. Uh, but yes. we are hearing reports. We're hearing accounts. Um, and, and that, you know, passions are inflamed by these horrible protests when it's like maybe passions are inflamed because 
there's an ethnic ethnic cleansing campaign going on and, yes. and people have a human connection to that, whether it's direct, they have family members who are affected on either side, right? Mm-hmm. Or maybe it's, you know, they are thinking about their financial and and national investment in it. Like the US is deeply implicated materially in what's going on. And so that is going to inflame passions. Carnegie Mellon students are not in a bubble. They're citizens of the world. They understand what's going on in the world around them. Um, And so the idea that like, (laughs) that like this phrase would just sort of invade the campus and, and, and disrupt the, the otherwise perfectly harmonious ideological space of the campus (laughs) is, is really horrible. Yeah, absolutely. What we've seen from this analysis is the way that we can actually pick apart the sort of discursive features that we see in a text like this, like this email from a university president to students and faculty members, the way that that discourse is being used to construct certain cognitive uh, mental models of the way that we should be thinking about this issue, uh, the way that we should be thinking about different players and actors in this issue, what is considered to be good and bad, what constitutes us as a community versus those others as outsiders, as well as the overall social effects that that has, the way that power and inequality is reinforced through the inscription of this manipulative discourse. We hope that you're able to see the way that all of those three sort of levels of discursive manipulation are all intertwined together, that the discourse has the ability to affect our cognition, which then has this broader social effect when it uh, it reverberates outwards, for lack of a better term. Right. And I think what it also helps us to do, and this is a, a crucial aspect of any critical discourse study is that it allows us to see that these are all choices. These are all discursive um, options that did not have to be taken by the writer. Um, And, you know, this could have been written in a way that was much less manipulative through different kinds of structuring, different kinds of lexical choices, syntactic choices, but those choices were made and they have consequences. And so realizing that none of this is preordained that there was a particular moral choice made to write this in this way and that it has moral effects Um, and being given a method to call those out and, you know, think through better alternatives, I think is really useful. I agree. Yeah, no, the manipulation framework is a really useful tool and we will no doubt be using this framework to analyze other instances of propaganda of you know official statements about uh this conflict in particular as it continues to unfold it right now does not really show any signs of ceasing uh although i mean again i think i i don't want to speak for the both of us i'll speak on my behalf and i'll i'll you know let you chime in with your thoughts but i mean you know my position here would be ceasefire now i don't think that there is any room for argument that the violence has that there is any worthiness in it continuing um that that really you know death and destruction is just going to beget more death and destruction that i think you know there is there is a moral choice if you look there is a clear moral choice if you look at this conflict um and that this uh, that a ceasefire and a return of you know everyone for everyone as the families of the israeli hostages have said everyone for everyone a return yeah. of people to where they came from and you know ongoing talks about how to 
re-enfranchise and grant full rights to everyone in the region, I think is Absolutely. really what's needed. And I mean, you know, I think it was Perlman and Ulbricht Saiteko who said that rhetoric is the is the only uh, moral alternative to violence, to force. And I think right. that like we would be sort of letting down our disciplinary and professional position if we weren't calling for peace. Um, this is like a framework like this, uh, conversations like this should be oriented towards ending violence. And, you know, it's very clear here that violence is making things much, much worse. And so, yeah, we are hopeful and and we are invested in a particular outcome here. And that's part of a CDS approach as well, is yes. being clear about your moral and political positions. Our preferred outcome here is for, for this violence to end as quickly as possible. Yes. And so we will be coming back soon with a follow-up episode moving from the academic sphere to the political sphere. But uh, we hope that this analysis of you know a particular academic in intervention can help some of our academic listeners and non-academic listeners see how manipulative rhetoric occurs at an institutional level. It may be going on at your institution. Absolutely. And so you can look for some of these same kinds of tropes and techniques um, and call them out. You know, you're you are probably in a position with a lot more power than you realize to call this kind of rhetoric out and uh, uh, push for alternatives. Absolutely. Yeah. And stick together. That's the other thing is that you're, you're much as Van Dyke mentions in here, you know, manipulation is best looked at uh, in terms of collectivities of people, not just individuals. And I think the same goes for countering manipulation too. make sure, you know, talk with other people who are also able to see these kinds of manipulations at play or get organized with them, you know, attend demonstrations with people that have contextual understandings of this issue and, you know, educate yourself about it. That's, that's really what, that's really the best thing that you can do is give yourself more contextual knowledge so that you're less susceptible to manipulation. And don't be afraid to, to ask for the damn emails. Yes, you know, and don't be don't ever be afraid to ask for Farnham Jahanian's email. <laughs> <laughs> Russia, if you're listening. Uh, anyways, so it's been great speaking with you again, uh, folks. Thanks for listening in, and we'll be back with much more content soon. Anything else to add, Alex? Nope, other than just ceasefire now, and uh, yeah, peace be with you all. Truthfully, all right. I mean that. Absolutely. Take care, everyone. All Talk right. to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Our show today was produced and edited by Alex Helberg and Calvin Pollock. Reverb's co-producers at large are Ben Williams, Sophie Wadzak, and Olivia Burnett. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. If you've enjoyed our show and want to help amplify more of our public scholarship work, please consider leaving us a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice and tell a friend about us. We sincerely appreciate the support of our listeners. Thanks so much for tuning in.